This podcast is sponsored by ReformationSites.com, church websites for a modern Reformation. Listen for a special May offer at the conclusion of today's program. Oftentimes, I think the conclusions that are drawn by looking at modern theologies and using them to interpret the confession have led to some faulty conclusions. And so my work over the last almost 30 years has been to try to understand what the men and churches who first wrote and adopted the confession intended by it. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my good friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you doing today? Jonathan, I'm doing well. One day you may be announcing, you know, that I've passed and then it won't be as always anymore. But until then, um, I'm, it's just a, a veiled announcement of anything I know that's wrong. Just saying, I'm, I'm glad to be here uh, each and every time we can get together and have these discussions. I did not expect you to strike that note on the way well, in. Well, just, uh, just a somber, just a somber, just a reminder of our mortality. Just a reminder. That's right. Life is a vapor. I, I don't want to get. And, I don't uh, want our listeners to get lazy thinking that we can just presume. You know. So. Well, well, that's a that's a that's a fair point. On that note, we'll welcome our guest uh, who who has has just uh, uh, published a recent volume, and we were talking before. Uh, we started recording, and it is an immense accomplishment. And so it's a privilege. Uh, it's a guest that we've had on before, friend, Dr. James Renahan, who is the president of International Reformed Baptist Seminary in Mansfield, Texas. And the book that we're going to spend a little bit of time discussing is entitled To the Judicious and Impartial Reader, an Exposition of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Dr. Renahan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, let's. I want to start with a very broad question that will, will I, I hope, orient our readers. What is your objective in this volume? And then what limits did you set? Because I would imagine this is one of those projects that could go on forever and ever. There are endless avenues to explore, and you explore a lot of them, which is, which is really something. But, but, but why was it that you thought an exposition and a historical contextualization of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith was necessary and would be useful to, to readers today? Well, that the answer to that question goes all the way back into the 1990s uh, when I went to do my PhD under Tom Nettles at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, I was part pastor of a Reformed Baptist church uh, many churches had the Confession of Faith. We knew almost nothing about the churches or the men. We we knew maybe one or two names of the men who were involved and nothing more. And that set me on uh, on the pathway of studying ecclesiology in the Confession. Then in teaching uh, a course on the Confession over the last 25 years, more and more I've recognized that it needs to be understood uh, as it stands, and not in a modern interpretation. Most of the time, when we have come to it in the past, we've come to it through the lens of the 20th or 21st century. And oftentimes, I think the conclusions that are drawn by looking at modern theologies and in using them to interpret the confession have led to some faulty conclusions. 
And so my work over the last almost 30 years has been to try to understand what the men and churches who first wrote and adopted the confession intended by it. Now, that's not to say that we can't disagree with it, but I think disagreement needs to be honest. It's to say, this isn't what they meant. This is what I mean. So I, I wanted to put it in that, that framework and that context. Let's talk a little bit about how, how you uh, reappropriate that context uh, for us now. Obviously, that we're talking about an entire century and a theological milieu uh, may be different than our own. Uh, they, they mean different things, even by words that we might use in common. Um, so in order to give the modern reader of the, of the confession access to the thought world. And I, I really, it seems like that's what you're after uh, in this work and in its predecessor on the first London confession. Um, how, what should readers expect? Um, you're bringing them into the 17th century. That's your objective, uh, not merely for the sake of historiography, but for the sake of honest agreement or honest disagreement. Um, how do you bring the thought world of that century underlying the confession to the readers now? Yeah, that's a good question. And I lay out my methodology in the introduction to the book. It's, it's basically to say that the confession of faith stands on the shoulders of two pre prior confessions, the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists in 1658, and then the grandparent is the Westminster Confession, 1646-47. Um, and so I, I conceive of this, uh, of trying to build this thought world in concentric circles with the confession at the center, then any writings that come forward that we've been able to discover from the, uh, the, the men in the churches who adopted the Confession of Faith in 1689. Then out from that, because the language in most of the confession is the same as what we find in Savoy and Westminster, writings of men who were known to have been present at the Savoy Synod or in the Westminster Assembly. And then the outermost circle perhaps is the broader sweep of reform theology as it comes out of the Reformation. And so I had to weigh every quotation that I, I used to say, how relevant is this? If the language in the Baptist Confession is the same as Westminster, then someone who was present at the Westminster Assembly or is known to have subscribed to that confession in the 17th century, his understanding of the words of the Westminster are appropriate for what the how the Baptists would have understood the, the same language in their confession of faith. So it's sort of a concentric circle idea working its way out. In the Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, I was just going to ask, just to orient our, our listeners, some of whom might be unfamiliar with the 1689 confession and its relationship to the Savoy uh, and to Westminster, what are, apart from baptism, uh, what are some of the major differences that uh, you see between, uh, among these three, what 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 does the Baptist Confession of Faith say differently or approach differently, apart from obviously baptism, from from the the father and grandfather documents? Yeah, good question. Um, we have to go back to 1658 to the Savoy Declaration, which basically took the Westminster Confession, and some of the men who were at the Savoy Synod had been members of the Westminster Assembly, but they were Congregational, not Presbyterian, in their polity. 
So they um, adopt they, they they wrote the Savoy Declaration and its platform of polity to reflect congregational rather than Presbyterian theology. Likewise, there were some significant errors that had appeared in the decade since the Westminster Confession was published. Um, in London, there was a man named John Goodwin, not to be confused with Thomas, but John Goodwin, a leading Puritan Arminian who had proposed um, certain really uh, strong uh, disagreement with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, with the doctrine of um, uh, how, how original sin affects one's ability to believe the gospel, etc. And the Savoy Declaration is uh, nuanced in such a way to respond to those views. Likewise, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin, who were at the Savoy Synod, believe that the greatest threat to evangelical Christianity in England in the 17th century was Socinianism. And so they incorporated into their confession of faith uh, language that um, counters the growing tenets of Socinianism in their midst. So you have, you have a, a document 10 years after the Westminster Confession that differs both in its ecclesiology, but also in emphases that perhaps weren't present 10 years before. 20 years later, along come the Baptists, and uh, I can tell you what was on the table when they edited the confession. They, they certainly had the copy of the Savoy. They had a copy of the King James Bible. They had a Greek Testament, a Hebrew Old Testament. They, they also, 11 times, they restore the language of Westminster that was deleted or altered by Savoy. So you know that they had the Westminster Confession on the table as well as they were editing the document. So you 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 know you have all of this that's coming together. The the Baptists get as I said before to stand on the shoulders of great men who went before them and really just nuance their view. So the the differences that when you come to the Baptist Confession are 20 years later some more errors that have appeared that need to be responded to. For example, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator is made uh, closer to the uh, Chalcedonian Creed and the Nice or Chalcedonian definition and the Nicene Creed than you'll find in Westminster or Savoy. That's not to criticize them, but it's to recognize the importance of using that kind of language uh, 20 years later. Um, as you said, baptism, local church polity, very similar to congregationalism, uh, though not identical, but but pretty close. Um, that, to a large degree, that's that's where the major differences come. Let's talk about the book and how you how you bring in those those voices, kind of moving out in those concentric circles, giving pride of place to the men who actually wrote or subscribed to the Second London Confession, and then kind of moving out from there. Uh, one thing that stands out, Doctor Renahan, is how much space you do a lot to hearing those voices and you choose, uh, I think very deliberately to present lengthy thoughts in context in the original voices. And, and in most cases, trying to find first editions rather than later edits that smooth things out so that we can just hear them as they spoke. Um, what is the value of this as opposed to a much trimmer volume? And we should say this is a large volume, rightly so, importantly so. Um, but why offer, why offer them in their own voice at such length as opposed to um, a nice modern summary in your own words? Would you do yeah. some of that as well? 
Yeah, and and that's the style these days. Uh, when you read a historical book, it summarizes in a paragraph, in your own words, what was written. But I, I think it's really important to hear those voices so that they don't come mediated through my writing. We, we hear them as they are, and we can see how the, the men who edited the Confession of Faith were reading these books and being influenced by these books and drew that material into the Confession of Faith. Um, you, you, I can mediate the, the material. I can summarize it and put it forward. But that's not as helpful, at least in my mind, as hearing the voice of William Perkins or Thomas Goodwin or John Owen or, or Edward Lee or any of the other men that I quote at length throughout the book. It, uh, another side benefit that I see, this is sort of a hidden agenda thing, is there, there are some really helpful books that have never been reprinted that I've been able to gain access to, like Edward Lee. I know that you appreciate Edward Lee very much. I do. And, and I have enjoyed Edward Lee profoundly. Well, you and I and Jonathan maybe know who Edward Lee is, but a lot of people don't. Hopefully this book will introduce him back into the, the, the stream as a very important voice from the middle of the 17th century. I, I've, I thought I was familiar with the 17th century, um, I did a master's degree thesis on on 17th century Puritanism, and Dr. Renahan, there were all sorts of names and titles uh, that you were turning up in uh, in support of expositing the confession that I that were new to me. I, I felt completely new to the field uh, in many places through your book, which was was really thrilling. There's so, there's so much more um, than just the sets that have been republished by some of our favorite publishers. Um, and uh, I'm just, uh, I'm wowed at your spade work, <laughs> but, but in particular that I get to hear them in long form. Uh, I mm -hmm. like those longer paragraphs uh, for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let, let them argue the point themselves and we can evaluate their argument directly. Right. Since you have such extended quotations, I, I can imagine, and, and I'm, I think this is how I'll probably end up using this book the most it, as a kind of reference book to go in and out of various chapters and look at the secondary literature that's, that's relevant to it and read your exposition of the chapters as well. Is that what your intent was in the book, that it would be a kind of reference work, or, or are you envisioning or would you recommend to our listeners that they start at page one and – and work their way through the book because I can see advantages to that as well. You'd get the whole flow of thought in the confession and the context of it. Yeah. Reading it through from beginning to end, um, I think helps to get an idea that, that our confessions of faith, Westminster, Savoy, second London are systems of theology. What, one of the things that has concerned me and you'll notice this throughout the book, it has concerned me that people come to these documents with, say 32 chapters and they treat them as if there are 32 discrete chapters, we can, we can look at one chapter, pull it out, exegete it or expound it and without reference to the rest. Where what I've tried to do throughout the book is show the connections from chapter one all the way to chapter 32 and how it is a woven system of theology consistent with itself from beginning to end. So you, you would get that if you are reading through the book from beginning to end. But I think also, hopefully the way that I put it together is you'll get hints of that even if you only were to read one chapter, because I am constantly trying to 
show this picks up this thread from this previous chapter and this anticipates this thread that will be fleshed out five chapters later, etc. So, so you can read it that way from, from sort of a vertical view, but at the same time, I think uh, it, it's helpful to read it horizontally. As you went through, you, you have, you've given a lifetime to, to studying the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith were there things in your research and in your exposition in writing this volume that were particularly uh, surprising or exhilarating to you that, that maybe, maybe you'd seen them before, but they, they, you, you had a nude appreciation for them? Or uh, what, what, what were some of the highlights for you as you, as you spent time researching this? Yeah, um, all the way back to when I was writing my Ph.D. thesis, um, I was surprised by things that I learned about ecclesiology, assumptions that I had had 30 years ago that, that proved not to be true. Um, the more that I have worked and taught, the less that has surprised me so that the, the finished product that was just recently published, is there, I don't think there's anything in there that has really surprised me. But what I, I, I have enjoyed um, working through, for example, the, uh, the doctrine of God, and not just theology proper, but um, decrees, creation, providence. Uh, that that was a wonderful uh, section to me. Um, the chapter eight on Christology was thoroughly enjoyable to think about that and think of the glory of God. I think reading sideways through the confession, that, that's the horizontal view, the, the regular way that it constantly returns to Christ and the gospel is a great encouragement. Um, over and over again, in a paragraph, there'll be some kind of language that points you back to the Savior or reminds you of the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ. And so that that thread was wonderful. Uh, I, so I listened to a, an audio review that was done the other day, and uh, the man who was speaking said that he enjoyed that in the confession as well, because sometimes I couldn't contain myself, and I had to express my appreciation for the wonders of the gospel as they are concluded or included in the book. So all of that was great. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Well, let's talk just briefly and finally uh, just about the uniqueness of the contribution um, in that I think that pastors, Presbyterians do this, Baptists do this, undertake sometimes to work through the confession in a Sunday school class um, or put it into writing. Um, and those can be, those can be helpful. But uh, in addition to that, what, what is your work doing? And this is, I'm, I'll give you an opportunity to just kind of say what you're uniquely aiming at. What is it doing that is perhaps different than other expositions of the confession? What is, what is that thing that this brings to the table and why? And maybe this is part of why it took you so long because of that unique thing uh, that you're aiming to do. What can what can readers expect in that in that regard? And this is not to stand in in judgment of any other expositions of it, but there's something unique that you're doing. Well, um, I I think that other expositions have a place, and they've been very helpful and very useful uh, over the years. Uh, and they, they ought to be appreciated for what they are. But they tend to uh, view the confession through a modern lens. 
And so the you, when you read the footnotes and you look at the references, they are largely to theological works that come to us from the 19th or 20th century. What I have wanted to do is not look at the confession of faith through that modern lens, but look at it through an early modern lens, a 17th century lens. I don't know that that's been done before. Uh, we do have um, some contemporary works like David Dixon's Truth's Victory Over Error, which I've always thought was incredibly helpful in in teaching me what was intended by language in the confession of faith. But for the most part, more recent expositions, you will find the famous names of 20th century theologians with reference to them. And I'm not always convinced that the 20th century theologians had the right perspective on 17th century Puritan post-Reformation theology. So my contribution is to try to put the confession of faith into that context as over against the modern context. Well, I I think I'll speak for myself, uh, but I think I speak for others too. Um, that we're very we're grateful for uh, the years uh, that you've invested in in mining these sources to resituate this confession and and its related confessions that went before it. Uh, into a world of thought, and you, you and I have had these discussions over the years of, of uh, the the world of implication in a single phrase in the confession mm, yeah. that that was completely bewildering to me in light of a kind of a 20th century style theological education that didn't set me up to understand what the confession meant, even though I could read the words in English. So for for those of us like that, of which I think we are probably many, uh, I'll I'll record my gratitude to you for that, and uh, I'm I'm sure others would join me. Oh, thanks, brother. Appreciate that a lot. I would I would add a hearty amen to that in the in the spirit of speaking with two Baptist theologians, uh, the heartiest amen to what James just said. That's absolutely right. We uh we uh, uh this is this is really a remarkable gift to the church and, and we're grateful for it thank you and thanks for coming on and uh, having a brief discussion and hopefully this will lead some readers into uh undertaking the work of of working through your exposition yeah, i hope so hope it's useful Did you know that most people view a church's website before they'll ever step foot in the door? So how's your church's site? Would an online visitor searching for a church home find it inviting? Does it reflect your ministry as it should? Perhaps it's time to start a new site for your church that reaches out more effectively with a design that engages visitors while keeping members connected. Reformation Sites has beautiful, mobile-ready designs to choose from helpful service, and useful features such as sermon manager, online bulletins, ministries, books, and notifications. It also integrates with other popular services like sermon audio, live streaming, and online giving with pricing that fits into any church budget. In the month of May, we're offering 15% off the website setup fee. Get started by using coupon code RS15 when you go to reformationsites.com. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.